This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. And this is Trav. Welcome to the TriTac podcast. This week, we are continuing our series on adventuring in the past from the 5th century through the 11th century. This week, we're talking about Europe. I'm going to take a, a little bit of a different tack than I think some of the other hosts have been doing because looking over European history from the period of 5th century to the 11th century, Europe's a mess. It is totally a mess. And when I say that, I mean there were certain centers of civilization. But for most of the time, what you had was a section of Europe getting overrun by one invader, fighting them off, getting overrun again and again and again and again. Now, what does this mean for Friends with the Explorers? This is a great time to do all kinds of interesting things for two reasons. One is because no matter what you do, you don't have to worry about negatively affecting the, quote, future. Every time someone wins a battle, 20 years later, when their son gets on the throne, bam, they get knocked down. So no matter what you do, you're probably not going to overall affect the course of history. Secondly, that means that there's something interesting going on everywhere in some time. You just, as a GM, you just have to say, let me just go ahead and pick an area of Europe. Okay, let me you know, do a little look through the chronology. Oh, here's something interesting happening. If you're into warfare, believe me, there's plenty of that. If you're into trading, if you're into religion, all kinds of incredible things are going on. Don't worry about what time in this thing that you end up in. Most of the time, you're going to be able to find something interesting to do no matter where you are. There are a couple things that are really important during this period of time. The Roman Empire basically falls apart. Uh, It falls apart early. It's already falling apart. The Roman Empire was basically at its height in the second century, and it has been going downhill ever since. It's been pulling itself back, back, back to Rome, and it's only right now almost ready to fall. It doesn't actually go away just collapses down and then splits and goes off in different directions. Another really important thing that happens is the rise of Islam. In the 6th century is when Muhammad is born. And it doesn't take very long before the Islamic Republic uh, or the empire begins. First it takes out Persia, then it crosses over North Africa, and finally goes up into Spain and takes over all of Spain and most of France for a long period of time. As a matter of fact, for eight centuries. But initially, it's not there. So in the 5th and 6th century, those areas are just beginning to hear about bad things happening. They're, at that point, they are being ruled by people that are called vandals. Someone says, you're vandalizing something? Well, that came from this group of people in Spain, what we know today as Spain, who ended up going over and sacking Rome because Rome was too weak to, uh, to protect itself anymore. All kinds of groups coming together. You've got piracy, you've got bandits, you've got strange invaders going everywhere in Europe. Lots of stuff to do. 
It's like we're walking into the past, our own past. As far as we're concerned, it's the world in which we would have been if we went back in time with a time machine. But because this isn't a time machine, we can't expect the world to have something amazing happening just that moment. You can't go through and find yourself right next to the fall of Constantinople. Even though that's the the adventure in the back of the 1992 version of Fringeworthy. It's just very, very unlikely for that to happen because you have no control over that. That would be GM Fiat doing that. And as GM does that one time in his campaign, that's cool. But if he keeps doing it, then we're really not talking about time-shifted worlds. You're just basically saying, I want my players to go and experience all the important, what I consider to be exciting events that happened in history. And you could do that, but you're really more or less doing a time travel adventure rather than a fringeworthy exploration adventure. What that means is, is that you need to pick events that are widespread, that take time to develop or are influencing the areas around them, and then use those as the core for your adventure. Let me give you an example. One of the great cities that arose during this period of time was Constantinople. Constantinople was the largest city in all of Europe through most of its history. It's now what is known as Istanbul. It's in Turkey, which is quite a bit east of Rome. This happened after the fall of Rome. The Roman Empire split into two parts, the east part and the west part, and the eastern part is where Constantinople was established by the Roman Empire, Constantine, back in the third or fourth century. This was a great place. They had up to 500,000 people in this town with walls that were three layers thick and could stand up to almost anybody trying to defeat it. It was a real bastion of civilization when the rest of Europe was basically practically reduced to fighting with sticks. So if you want your adventures in this period of time to be more like the medieval period, Constantinople is where you want to be. If you still want civilization, if you still want religious discourse and politics, Constantinople is a great place to be. The other place you'd want to look for this sort of thing would be in the middle of the Muslim Empire. When Europe was having almost no science, just basically trying to pick up the pieces of their learning again because of the fall and, and because of all the warfare that's going on, the Muslims were busy rediscovering or developing new science. They have a progressive period of discovery and enlightenment all during this period of time. If you wanted to go to a place where it really did seem to be civilized, you'd really want to go into the Islamic uh, territories where Persia is, where uh, Iran is now, that area. I know it's not in Europe, but it's right across the water from it. It's still going to affect European society. Is Alexandria is still not a bad city to go to. The library has been kind of torched and beat up, and, and it's not the Alexandria of old, but it's still a major trading port and, and still a hub of education and, and, and art and such. At this point, it was controlled by Islam. When they went to the Library of Alexandria, they said, if it's not in the Koran, it's uh, heretical. If it is in the Koran, it's redundant, so let's burn it. Right. They did that to histories and the philosophical texts. They didn't actually do that to engineering and science texts. They were still acting as a great stimulus to the Muslim empire, especially when they started moving further 
west across Africa and conquering all across the northern African part of the Mediterranean. Because if they hadn't done that, when they got over the west coast and decided to jump across the, the Straits of Gibraltar over into the Iberian Peninsula known as Spain, they wouldn't have had this unstoppable army at that point. They had learned their lessons well. It's not exactly in the European area, but it affects it because they're going to come over into Europe. Right. Until about 800, it's almost a constant warfare of Muslim empire trying to push into Europe and take over. About that point, it actually got stopped cold and essentially remained static for the rest of what the period we're talking about. That was due to actually some developments in military technology. On the eastern side, they were defeated by what became the Ottoman Empire, by a Germanic country who had developed heavy cavalry and were able to defeat them readily. I mean, almost decimated them because they, they were used to the kind of warfare that they'd been getting from Constantinople. However, a century later, they get beat. Again, which is what I'm saying. This happens again and again. They will win, and then 20, 50 years later, 100 years later, bam, they're defeated. And then again after that, it changes back. What I'm trying not to do is give you some kind of a blow-by-blow of the history of Europe during this period of time. Because if that's what you want, you know, there's lots of history texts out there. I'm trying to think of hooks that will make it exciting for players to play during this period of time. So back to the example I was giving was is that when I talked about Constantinople, is that at its height, it had 500,000 people living in it. They did not have the ability to support their own city with food. That was just too many people for that place to get. They got their food from Egypt. They had a constant supply train of ships coming over, providing supplies into Constantinople. So you can imagine that when the Muslims finally started defeating that area, taking over that area, that was going to change. But even before that happened, the guy who was in charge of Egypt at the time said, you know, we don't have to give you free grain. You're up there and we're down here and I think we're going to take over. And they stopped giving free grain to Constantinople. Then a short period of time, they dropped from 500,000 to like 70,000. Right. Okay. So uh, a lot of the adventures you could have would be along this trade route of food going from this area in Egypt up to Constantinople. That's a place where all kinds of things could be happening. There's a lot of money involved. Food is valuable. Probably people that are trying to cut off the route. There'll be people who are trying to get payoffs along the way. Adventurers can come in and plug in themselves anywhere along there and have an adventure related to that. And this is, takes a long period of time. So they could come in and threaten it, or they could stop somebody who is threatening to disrupt the trade route for one reason or another. And there were a lot of people who wanted to, because they wanted in on this gravy train. If they could be the person, the stopgate, that would keep these ships from getting through to Constantinople, then that's going to hurt Constantinople. And if, you, if you're careful about it, you can, you can get some pretty serious coin in your pocket out of a form of extortion. This sounds like a lot of turmoil. A lot of shifting borders, people invading in and out, so like a huge melting pot. So the one real big advantage to a a fringeworthy team arriving is if you look a little out of place, that's probably fine because they're used to seeing people all the time from all over. Right. You are going to have problems in the in the sense that you're probably going to have a whole lot of different languages. So yes, you will be speaking the the most common language in that area, but – you know, if you go outside the area, they may very well be speaking yeah. a different language. So, so as we've mentioned in other uh, podcasts, really important to cultivate your local language experts. 
so that you know you can have people that can help you expand on these areas. Also, natural language computer systems to recognize languages and do translations. These are available even in the early campaign because we have ones right now that do pretty good sound recognition. But if you get a little further in the middle campaign or especially the late campaign, language really shouldn't be a problem at that point. The one language that in Europe you may be able to use and have everyone understand it's going to be Latin, church Latin, in fact, because that's going to be per- pervasive for the, a lot of the churches in the area. And you might be able to at least talk to the priests at that point. Maybe you talk to a few individuals who do Latin. So that's be the one lingua franca you're going to find. Right. It's not going to be as like it was under the Romans, but it's going to be common enough that you can at least find somebody who understands what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. Languages do degrade over time due to culture and technology even back then. I mean, look at English, how it's changed in the past 50 years. That's one of the major things that's going on there is that you've got the establishment of the city of Constantinople and the support of it. And that drives a lot of stuff that's happening in Eastern Europe. Over in Western Europe, you've got the Goths. The Goths do a lot of warring around and they basically uh, keep the Western Roman Empire from becoming anything more than the small thing that it is. They basically keep it bottled up. But then they fall to the Muslim empire when it finally comes across and takes over Spain. They get almost into France where they get beaten by the same people who beat back the Romans originally. So during about the 8th or 9th century, you're going to be seeing Muslims on the, the western side of Europe, big time control going to see them across North Africa, Southern Mediterranean, and they're going to be taking control of the eastern side of the Mediterranean as well, going up into Turkey and trying to uh, control Constantinople until it falls. The Muslim Empire is pretty hot stuff. If you want to play adventures where you've got a, a clear winner, a clear group controlling an area, that's a, a huge empire that's being formed at that point. It will finally get knocked back. But at this point, they're the big cheese in the area. But one of the reasons that Europe didn't fight back as well against the Muslims as you might have expected, they they didn't really have God on their side compared to anybody else. But what they did have is that they didn't have a huge plague hitting Constantinople in the uh, 6th century. That was during the uh, rule of Emperor Justine. This hit over a period of about 50 years. It was the first real deep plague of the bubonic plague. We had instances of the bubonic plague in the southern Mediterranean area for quite some time. It would come in, go out, come in, go out. You know, it would hit small hamlets and things like that. It wouldn't have the devastating effect that it had when it finally reached Constantinople. Remember we talked about here's a, a huge trade city reaching out throughout large areas with a lot of people concentrated in a very small area without modern sanitation. It hit there. It really took its toll. Constantinople had, at that time, planned on a massive attack back against the Muslims and a whole lot of other people. They were actually trying to consolidate the East and the West empires, and it literally all fell apart because all of a sudden they didn't have the men or the the, the, the people. People were dying. 40% was the death rate during that period of time. So, again, you go to Constantinople or that area in that time— you've got a tremendous plague going on, which provides a lot of opportunities. There's going to be a lot of things that that you can do. You can help people. I mean, you could try to save a lot of people. Do not worry about changing the future because 
as soon as the fringeworthy find a world, that's not the last contact the fringeworthy are going to have with that world. From that standpoint on, that world is going to be slowly brought into contact with IDET. IDET is going to start bringing over uh, various people from the diplomatic corps. They're going to be trying to you know, bring enlightenment to them, raise them up in, in, in their technological level, trying to give them things that will help them socially, politically, uh, environmentally, and hopefully not things that are just weapons. But all the basic principles of warfare you know, come from basic principles of science. So once you've learned these things, once they get their hands on a history book uh, and, and literally read their own future, it's not going to be long before these people figure out how to do better warfare. There's no prime directive here because as soon as they, they come into contact with IDET and they actually want to, to open up real trade with us, their culture is going to be forever changed. History as we know it is over. Right, yeah, IDET is, is, not, is not Starfleet. Their prime directive is get involved. So you don't have to worry about interfering with the world because that's, that's the French word. The, the IDET wants to interfere with the world. They want to help people and make change and uh, get involved. Well, Eventually, but initially, you're doing a first year's campaign. There'd be a lot of trepidation about actually going in there and screwing things up. Well, yeah, because they don't really know what they're doing yet. But yeah. once they get a handle on, they learn how to integrate with societies and talk with them. They get a little m- more mature. Like, like you're, you're right, John. In the very early campaigns, they want to probably keep that to a minimum. But by the time you get into the middle campaign, they're they're probably going headlong into in, into getting involved. There's probably methodologies for this kind of contact that they may do. One of the ones that come to mind is the classic concept balance of terror. You find three major league power groups. You just go in and give the same thing to all three of them. So they're all better at fighting. You, you haven't actually changed the power structure there because they're all better. But at the same time you do that, you can also give them information on uh, sanitation and, and bacteriological uh, sterilization and, and better crop rotation and all these things. Irrigation yeah. techniques. And that only really works if it's a prime. If it's not a prime but an alt, then whoever is, has control of the portal is going to get all the benefits. Well, you're assuming, of course, that anybody has control of the portal. Remember, John, you can go through with aircraft. You can fly great distances. You can even drop this stuff from the sky and say, hey, care package <laughs> from God. Just pepper the whole area with information diagrams and things oh. like that that's appropriate to their technology level so they can say, hey, I could actually make a better grade of steel. Or, you know, hey, this says that if we boil our water, we purge the evil spirits out of it. To run to the problem where we taught them it so well, you now have IEDs sitting outside the portal waiting for you to step out. Because you got these guys, you're raising them up, and of course they have their own egos. They have their own agendas and such. They don't want to be ruled by someone else. Nobody does. You know, they got these upstarts coming in, these, these guys from this IDET. It creates a situation that could be a problem. There's societies here, modern day, like when, uh, let's say, World War II, these people come in on the planes and they land and they're giving the care packages to the natives. And then after the war's over, they leave. There have been whole religions based on the big metal bird giving gifts. Cargo cults. Yeah, right. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Blix. That, that's a term I was looking for. I, because you're hitting them on a primal level with religion— you're shaking this previously untouched society to its core because now they're seeing you as gods. And, of course, you know, there's going to be that one time where you're going to mess up. 
And if it's a primitive culture, you're going to end up at sword point where before they idolized you. This is a role playing game. As a game master, you don't have to be that critical of things. You can make it oh, easier yeah. and more fun if you, if you know, should you choose to. The adventure should be what you want it to be, and, and well, only, yeah. if the, only if the players yeah. screw up, you know, would, would you create something like. This. For example, you get a group of players, and they get a little power hungry, and they start taking advantage. They start doing stuff. I think I would punish the group if they were acting inappropriately with a situation just like that. I think I would set it up to where. The group seizes control of the portal, and Idet is really pissed off, you know, at this group of travelers, and they wind up getting crappy missions for a little while, you know, to punish them for screwing this world up. But if they do everything right, and they do everything in good faith, and they, unless, of course, you're setting that world up for something in particular, I don't think I would go down that road. I think I would keep the world rather friendly for transverse, you know? Well, yeah. You know, let's say it all falls apart and you end up being chased toward the portal by a bunch of natives wielding your freshly minted blunderbusses. What fun! Great! That <laughs> <laughs> does sound yeah. like a good time. Jacques, open the portal! Jacques, the portal! <laughs> I'm trying to find the key! <laughs> We already have an episode on failure and why failure isn't necessarily bad. Not every world is fun. One of these days, these kids are going to grow up and they're going to want to stand on their own two feet and they're not going to want you, you know, leaning over their shoulder. Well, that's fine. That will probably happen. But back to the whole reason of why you're going to these worlds. Remember, Earth has problems. Earth Prime is has huge population problems. We have pollution problems. In some ways, we're running out of power, global warming, all these things, okay? You, as the GM, can basically acerbate these situations whatever way you want to. So Earth needs solutions. And so you're going out to these worlds looking for solutions. A lot of times, because these are alien worlds that are possibly touched by the Commonwealth, there might be artifacts out there. There might be books that have been left behind by previous explorers from some of the old Meller. A lot of the times you'll be going to these worlds actually trying to chase down legends to see if maybe there might be some artifacts or some information that you haven't been able to get your hands on yet on this world that's otherwise medieval or pre-medieval. But you're looking after something super high-tech that might actually be still residing on that world as some kind of a, a legacy, an artifact, some kind of object in a shrine somewhere. So there's a good reason for you to be exploring these things and really making the extra effort. various areas in Europe, you have the feudal system in full bore going on. This is the Dark Ages. It doesn't matter if you're in England, France, or Italy. Your law as a peasant is to till the master's soil and give him most of your crops. That's true anywhere. I mean, you know, all these places that we're talking about, that's actually to their benefit in a lot of regards because what will happen is is that some guys on a, on a bunch of horseback are going to go riding into the area and say, we take this over for so-and-so. And you're like, okay. And you go back to hoeing your piece of ground. They're not going to bother with you. You're a peasant. There's actually a lot of stability about being a peasant in those days, you know, because the fighting occurred amongst the, the guys who actually could afford things like armor and shields and weapons. This is a time period where everyone had their place, and you didn't shift out of that place very easily. You showing up as fringeworthy, you don't fit in the hierarchy. Just by being loose cannons, you can make major changes in, in the culture. In this time period, 
you have one group coming in and conquering another group. And then 20 years later, the, the original group turns around and conquers them back. You coming in with military might or just as traitors is quite possible. And uh, this is the period in which the rise of the mercantile starts with powerful trading families. So you don't have to come in as a military force. Just coming in with the ability to bring in goods and services to an area, of course, you have to go to the head guy and talk to him. But as long as you make yourself useful, you may not reach the upper stratas of society, or you can if that's the way you want to go. But you can still find yourself in a position of privilege and not be treated as a peasant. One of the legends that's going on right the very beginning in the 5th century is the legend of Arthur. In 490, in uh, what is called the, the Battle of Mount Baden, B-A-D-O-N, according to legend, British forces led by Arthur defeated the invading Saxons. So if you think of Arthur as we have so commonly done, where they're wearing this gleaming metal armor and they've got big, huge jousting poles and things like that. That wasn't the Arthur of actual history uh, or a legendary history. We're talking about back in the 5th century, so their armor and weapons were considerably less formidable. But you could still have an adventure that involves the Arthurian kind of idea. You could still have chivalry. You could still have the concept of knights you know, riding around the countryside, beating off the Saxons wherever they might be invading. This continues to like 537, which is the final battle of the legendary Arthur. So you've got a period there for almost 50 years of which, if you want to place your portal in Britain, you have a, a pretty good chance of actually meeting Arthur, taking part of at least some kind of a campaign involving Arthurian legend. If you want to, you could even include things like witchcraft, Morgan Le Fay, or you can just simply treat them as fight of the Picts versus the Saxons. It means Merlin's either a good Meller, touch Meller, or it's a Termelon in disguise. Or it's quite possible that the sword Excalibur could actually be something made out of Termelon steel. It wasn't a sword, it was the thing you wanted. You wanted a scabbard. That's the thing that actually pitted you from harm, was the scabbard of Excalibur. Okay. That's if you follow the legend, but if you actually try to make some science fiction yeah. into the story, then you could say, well, yeah, but it's you know, Arthur's sword, which is given to him by the Lady of the Lake. That has all the hallmarks of somebody in a frog suit rising out of the water, holding a sword made out of precious metal that to and steel that can't be broken, that may have a genetic marker on it that only allows the heirs of Arthur to even pick it up. It includes gyroscopic balancing. And- you can really trick out an artifact like that, which would make a very good reason for people to go and explore. So what I'm saying here is that a lot of legends are taking place. There's druidical legends. There's the Arthurian legends. There's all kinds of things like that going on. And you can just take it as straight history, or you can trick it out with science, with the science fiction aspects of Fringeworthy and say, well, some of these, these were all connected to the Fringe past. Therefore, there are people in this world who have led the, the Commonwealth during the war for safety in this world, or there's an old Meller, or there could have even been a partial evil Meller attack they managed to stop before it got too far. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of things that could have been going on and still you know, have the overall history of Europe mm-hmm. intact. Another thing we've been doing lately with our group is 
over the years, a lot of times we'll go on adventures where we want to simulate something that's happened in a movie or a story because that's just fun to do. And we're always joining these superheroic characters in, in their adventures or, or, or running some tangent adventure that helps them in some way or involves them in some way. But lately, our group has been, why are we helping the heroes? We're the heroes. So we've been trying to tangle the stories so that we wind up being those heroes in the story, albeit in a different, you know, in a different way. Um, for example, you come through the portal and you're the chosen one and one of your group winds up pulling the sword from the stone. The game master, would, he would have to work it so that he knew who in the party was going to do, you know, was going to take what kind of roles. And they could wind up becoming the Knights of the Round Table if you set it up properly. And to me, that seems like it would be vastly more fun than meeting the Knights of the Round Table. These adventurers, these explorers, they know all the legends. They've got books about the legends. So stepping into the, the roles would be relatively easy for them. They already know their parts. All during this period of time, we, we talk about kings and other types of people. There was an emperor the whole time in both the Eastern and Western Roman Empire. But they weren't the guys in charge. They always had the, the heads of their armies, or there was always a strong man somewhere. There was no rule of law during this period of time. That doesn't happen until much later. Whatever the so-called king, whoever he may be, whoever the person is, they might have their religion to fall back on as to what would be a fair judgment. But they could render whatever they wanted. Going up to the religious leaders didn't always necessarily put you in contact with the people who were really in charge. These people were brutal in a lot of cases. You had to be very careful with them. And you had to understand that you had to make yourself valuable to them if you wanted to make any kind of lasting connection to them, any kind of a real treaty that would stand to more than walking out of the room. Adventures where half the team is rescuing the other half of the team is probably going to be very common during this period of time, uh, unless you come in as literally gods. In which case, you you basically say, you know, uh, I've got my armor personnel carrier and you guys can't mess with me. And be careful because Hannibal came over the mountains to Rome with elephants. So these primitive people are more capable than you might think. Greek fire was rediscovered in the 7th century. Oh, really? Okay. But it was really good at keeping sieges by ships from being successful. This is a time when a lot of weaponry and a lot of armor development comes into play. That's why they were able to finally defeat uh, the Muslim incursions was because, as I said, they developed heavy cavalry by the northeastern Germanic tribes, what became known as the Ottoman Empire. It just basically set them packing. We're cooking up the, the Middle Ages right now. This is, this is the recipe of the birth of the Middle Ages during this time period. We're developing the proper armor and the cavalry and archery. and While all these things happen in fits and starts, they were still happening. Armor. When it comes right down to it, if, unless you're a knight or a landed noble, you got jack. And when I say jack, I'm talking like a jack, which is a leather, leather jacket. Tuck. That's your armor. A good suit of chainmail took a year or more to make. Every link was hand-forged in, in that suit. It's so you don't, you don't whip out in a week. It's, it takes a year to make one and to fit one properly. 
and it's usually those things are usually handed down to the kid who takes over from the father. You literally had family armor. When they talk about family coats of arm, originally it was family armor. <laughs> the price of a, of a full suit of chain armor was equivalent of a five-bedroom home in the United States, say, about oh, two years ago when the prices were high. We're talking like a million dollars for that armor. Sorry, folks, you don't you don't have chain. You have leather jackets. That's about it. And you you pray no one hits you. Well, yeah, but it wasn't leather jackets like you know Benny and the Jets. We're talking about cure boile, where they take the leather and they boil it in oil until it's as hard as at least as hard as wood, hardwood. Yep. So and you're yeah. wearing padding underneath all this too. You, you you don't wear a chain without padding. You have to wear padding because uh, it will rub you raw. Yeah. Yes. When someone takes a, a mace and slams you with that, you really don't want those links embedded in your flesh because that's what happens without padded armor. Actually, the padding also helps uh, spread the blow out. So, you, so yeah, a sword, will, a sword can't get through. It still can put enough pressure on your on your skin to break your skin to the to the chain. But if you're wearing a good thick cotton padding underneath underneath that. It, it just spreads out even more, so all you get is a big old bruise where you got hit instead. Well, plus the European weapons, most weapons in this time frame, in this part of the world, they're not kept really sharp to begin with. Nah. A sword is a bludgeoning weapon in a lot of ways. I mean, it still cuts. You know, If it hits bare skin, it's still going to slash into it. They're not really super dull. They're not, you know, it's not like hitting somebody with a metal baseball bat. But... Hitting chainmail with a sword, you know, it may not cut through the chainmail, but it still could snap your ribs. Oh yeah, a Zweihander. Oh yeah, that's more the force of the blow. You know, a, a German two-handed sword. That's more from the force of the blow than from getting sliced, because right. that sword is like what six feet long. Yeah, right. Yeah, as a matter of fact, swinging that I, bad boy, that's momentum. Hitting. It's a horse sword. You didn't wear it. You put it on your horse. Well, you swung it from horseback, John. You used on horses too. I mean, hey, we always say these movies. Everyone's shooting at the soldiers. No, they shot the horses, folks. I'm sorry, they shot the horses because that means you you now have an unmounted rider who's now a lot more vulnerable in that heavy suit of armor he's wearing. Well, not only that, but this guy just got thrown off a horse at high speed, mm-hmm. and he could have broken his neck on the way down. Yeah, easily could have broken a limb falling. He's definitely going to be winded. You knock him off his horse, you run up and you stab him. This heavy cavalry, they came from the area known as Bulgaria, and that happened in the 8th century. And that was the end of the Islamic incursion into Europe. When the heavy cavalry met the Islamic fighters, twenty to 32,000 Arabs died in a single day. Oh, wow. So, so they decimated their forces. They were not ready to deal with that. Okay, so one of the great things that happened during this period of time was the widespread introduction of horses into the landscape. I mean, we're talking absolutely beautiful horses. They were not draft horses. These aren't the Clydesdales that developed later on. These were fast-running horses that were used in combat for sending messages here and there. If you're players or even a GM who loves horses, this was a perfect time because lots of adventures could be oriented around somebody trying to stop a message from getting from one place to another, somebody going and capturing what would to you would be a minor noble and holding them for ransom, and then the message is being sent back to their family. It's intercepted by a local warlord who wants to get in on the action. If you like horses, this is a great time. Europe doesn't have a whole lot of great roads, except the old Roman roads, which they're good, but without anybody to maintain them, they fall into ruin. 
I'm not going to have huge wagon trains going through it. The horseback is the way of traveling through Europe during most of this period of time. And so you can have some great stuff going on with them, especially if you are somewhere uh, beyond the initial part of the campaign where you can have some uplifted horses, where you can have some horses with really good training. I mean, there's so many things you can do. You could take a horse and you could put uh, some kind of a surveillance device on the horse and gift it to somebody. And they take it in and they show the horse off. They bring it into their court. The horse acting as your own literally Trojan horse. Yeah. Right. But I mean, all kinds of animals, trained animals can be used in these situations, which doesn't look like super high tech. It's possible that it would look almost like supernatural in the cases where you have some kind of a miniaturized transmitter receiver in the horse's ears. And you have the horse performing all kinds of commands that nobody can understand because they can't hear them happening. If you taught the horse to rear at a certain time, you give it to the general of the opposing army. The general gets up. He says, "Okay, man, we will defeat them. And all of a sudden the horse rears up and dumps them over. Okay, they're without their general now. The, the ranks are thrown in confusion. Now is your opportunity to attack or whatever you might want to do. They could bring in smoke. They could bring in gas. They could bring in even uh, diseases if you're evil. There are lots of stories of really smart horses in lore of very many countries. That would be something that actually you could play off of. That's basically travel. Most of the real trade that occurs inside the deep parts of Europe during this period of time are still on the waterways. So boats are important. They don't have powerful schooners the way we have later. They're still pretty much limited to the kind of boats that they had back in the Roman time with your shallow draft, wide boats. What are those small boats that you were telling me about, John, that were used primarily by pirates? Oh, um, sloop. If you're going to travel from place to place and you don't want to use aircraft and you're not big into horsemanship, then you're probably going to be wanting to use boats during this period of time. There are several major rivers in Europe, including the Danube, which flows from uh, Germany into the Black Sea. Right. And the Rhine. Yep. The Seine. The Seine. They're going to have a lot of traffic, and that's actually where a lot of the culture is going to be along those, a lot of the mercantile culture is going to be along those rivers. And wherever there's money and wherever there's boats, there's piracy. Oh, yeah. So we got pirates. In fact, one, in fact, one of the Italian states during this time period is called the Pirate States. All of the Mediterranean Sea is, of course, going to be constantly busy. You're going to be running into Muslim ships. Rome still exists. It becomes less and less important as time goes on. Finally, it's abandoned, and it becomes literally a place where people graze sheep. And everything that we know of in Rome is basically raised down to just walls and such. It isn't rebuilt until the 15th century. There is sort of a rebirth of Rome, but it's not quite. It's called the Holy Roman Empire, which is most of Germany and a bit of Italy. Yeah, that's the, that's the most the Eastern and Western, you know, Roman empires that we've been talking well, we're about. Talking the Holy Roman Empire, was, which was founded uh, after Charlemagne, is created by the Pope more like by anything else. That's why it was called the Holy, Ro- Holy Roman Empire. Versus, But even though he was the Pope, he still did not rule in the sense the Caesars had done before. He still relied upon his generals and upon various dukes and things like that to actually do the, the heavy lifting. Yeah. During this period of time, you want to go talk to these religious leaders because they're the ones who are basically protecting the artifacts that you're most interested in. The real leaders, the real power is going to be not in the hands of the clergy. They're going to be in the hands of religious leaders of state, like generals and dukes and things like that. 
So don't make the mistake of, of running up to the Pope and say, hey, you're the head of this whole thing. Help us. It'll be like, well, bless on, on you, my son. Considering that position was pretty much handpicked for a good portion of this time by the current, by whoever was the Holy Roman Empire emperor at the time. Yeah. Uh, the Pope and the emperor were not the same thing. The emperor was the secular leader. He sometimes had a hand in choosing who was going to be the Pope. Absolutely. Yes, that's very true. It might have still been done by a bunch of cardinals, but they were doing it with a very strong agenda being handed to them. After the Romans abandon Britain, the Saxons move in. The Saxons and the Normans. The Saxons were basically uh, Vikings. They came over and they started raiding Britain. The reason they did that was because there was a lot of money in Britain. There was a lot of places had been built, monasteries. There were lots of monasteries all around Britain. They had a lot of artifacts in them and they had been collecting tribute and things like that for centuries and storing them in these little monasteries and it was just like little treasure troves for the Vikings. They, they, would, they would be literally running around trying to find monasteries for them to sack. Many adventures you could run would be about defending some poor monastery from a Viking incursion. The Vikings became the Saxons, but the ones who really took over Britain were the Normans. The very first Viking raid occurred on the Abbey of Lindisfarne in northern England in 793. So that's how far back these Viking raids on England started. Why are so many redheads in Scotland and Ireland? Because this shows their Scandinavian heritage. When the Vikings attacked, they also landed. They also colonized. But they didn't colonize southern Britain. They colonized northern Britain because it was the same latitude as what they were used to. So they took over northern England, Scotland, part of Ireland. They established Dublin, and they caused the downfall of the Picts because they they were better fighters. They had better boats. They were just all around a better military force. They did what the Romans couldn't do. They said the Romans couldn't stop them. Because the church still remained throughout this entire area, even though the, the riches started being disappeared out of England, still art and architecture started to rise, funded primarily by the church. The cathedrals that they built in Notre Dame and a lot of other things were all done primarily by the church. So we basically move forward uh, in this talking from the, about the 5th century all the way up to almost the 10th century. So in the 10th century, most historians consider Europe to be at the height of the dark, dark ages. Yet the Byzantine Empire, which was the, the Empire of Constantinople, okay, was at the height of their economic and military strength at this point. So it's, it just depends on where you were as to how dark it really was. The Holy Rome Empire, as you said, John, was established uh, in 962 with Otto I. It included Germany, Austria, the Czech Republic, Switzerland, Liechtenstein, Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, Slovenia, I can't pronounce half of these things, Eastern France, Northern Italy, and Western Poland. (laughs) That was what was considered the Holy Roman Empire. I think this is ironic. The time that they're talking about the darkest time was actually the time when they were having the most stability. These large areas had formed alliances, though they might tussle with each other. The borders are pretty stable. There's trade going on. They're starting to make alliances based more on marrying into each other's families rather than just trying to kill everybody off. I just think it's interesting that they would use that term, they'd be the darkest. A lot of other things that are happening ecologically, the eradications of species, 
from these various places. The reindeer became extinct in Scotland in the 10th century. Lions became extinct in Europe. Imagine, here it is, 8th century Europe. You're going along, all of a sudden you get attacked by a lion. Richard the Lionhearted. I've thought about this for years. How did he know about lions? He was in Britain. I was not even aware that there were lions in Europe. (laughs) I always thought that they became extinct earlier. So Bruce, you're saying the 8th century, lions become extinct in Europe. No, that's 10th century. In the 8th century, there's plenty of them. Wow, that's interesting. That is, that's that's pretty amazing. Let's say you're, you're a game master and you're listening to this and you're you know, your players don't listen to this podcast or whatever. I mean, you can have an adventure. Players are riding through Italy or... or Tuscany or something like that. Tuscany or something like that. And a lion attacks them. They're like, oh, that's crazy. You know, was this some kind of weird alternate other or something like that? Like, no, no, nope. <laughs> it's it's a lion and they, they were there. Yeah, it's a lion and lions are de- deadly hunters. It probably wouldn't be a lion. It would be a pack of lions, a pack of lionesses. Right. Lionesses, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Remember, the lion was sitting back, you know, right. kicking back. It was the lionesses that did all That's the hunting. Right. Bring me the food. Bring me the food. I, I, yeah. <laughs> Actually, though, once the fight starts with the lionesses, that's when the male comes in and starts kicking, you know, kicking butt because, yeah. you know, they may have sat around, but when the yeah. fight started, they came in and they, they mopped up. I remember correctly with lions, they actually go for your throat because – these animals, you don't have to have dinosaurs in the Middle Ages for you to have scary wild animals. Bears, lions, no tigers though. That was definitely toward India. Reindeer, elks, a lot of these animals are really tough. They're scary and they're territorial. They live in the woods. Wolves were not the dangerous thing that most people think they are, but yet wolves attacked animals that they thought were weak. So if you got injured and left blood in on the ground, then you might find the wolf pack coming after you. Talking about where you did not have any resources except what you were bringing with you. Your local barony might be lucky to have a small stone fortress, uh, possibly only a picket around a hill with a building on the top of it. This was not a time when you had real military forces like we think of in the Middle Ages. You don't have a whole lot of art and culture and, and literature going on during this time. I mean, there's some. Right. Especially not in Northern Europe. If you get outside of the, the Islamic areas where that is actually you know, thriving, mm-hmm. you get into the Europe proper, there's not a whole lot of that going on. And that, that's part of the darkness. You know, People are just living. They're existing. They're existing. And some people conquering other people. And then you've got farmers. And right. it's just not a whole lot going on in a- academia. If you want to have that sort of thing, then you're going to have to go to the centers of these empires, like the Holy Roman Empire, go to Constantinople, go to some of the places down on the Mediterranean that still have culture. Any real distance up into Europe, and you're basically in a wilderness where the strong man rules. And speaking of enlightenment, here's one of the things that might be really surprising to our listeners. We know that later on you're going to have this whole big, huge inquisition going on with witchcraft and things like that. But that happened late in the time between the fall of the Roman Empire and this period of time. There's a very strong movement amongst most of the religious leaders to basically try to eradicate superstition amongst the people. Things like witchcraft actually becomes illegal not to to practice, but to believe in. 
<laughs> yes, they're putting out all kinds of treatises saying there is no such thing as witchcraft. These practices they're talking about are just simple superstition, and they have no real power, that the real power is, is in the hands of men and women in the here and now. There is no such things as that. The spiritual things are spiritual things, but there is no such thing as witches and witchcraft and, and other kinds of boogeyman and things like that that people were up till now saying were all over the place. Right. Literally, papal orders were being passed saying it's illegal to convict somebody of witchcraft. It doesn't exist. Don't even think about that. And so how ironic it is that later on, only a few centuries from now, there's going to be a huge witch hunt all through Europe. You think you know an area? Wait 50 years. <laughs> It'll change. Europe during this period of time is a huge, huge mess. Beowulf was set in this time period. This is a time period where these old legends, they were writing them down. They were, they were still telling them, but there was a very strong push from the, the various rulers and such to stop believing in them, to stop teaching them as truth. Legends, sure. Old stories, fine. But not as something you wanted to believe in anymore. You want to fear something? Fear me. Feel your ruler. <laughs> Don't think something supernatural is going to come flying out of the sky and snatch your oppressive ruler away, because it's not going to happen. We moved up to the 11th century now. This is what's considered the early Middle Ages. Things are getting pretty stable. We have some real empires going now. Europe is no longer that big mishmash it's been through most of it. The, but the Byzantine uh, power is declining as, as I say, the Ottoman Empire is, is on the rise. In northern Italy, you start getting a rise of the real traitor families we were talking about earlier that actually literally are in control. This is where you start getting your huge fleets that are beginning to go out and explore the world, finding their way to the East Indies, bringing back spices and things like that. This is all beginning to start now. Yeah, this is the time of Marco Polo. Yes, it is. By this time, by the way, they've already found the secret of silk. That was a big secret as to how silk was actually produced. And during this entire period, they actually figured out how silk was actually produced. They actually stole eggs and started producing it on your own. So you could have a whole spy thing going on where you have agents from the East trying to stop people from disseminating knowledge about the silk trade. And you can put it basically anywhere you wanted to because it would be anywhere along the silk route. Bruce, why is silk so important? I don't know why silk was more important other than the fact it was something that was used to make the most rich of garments. It's a luxury, it's a luxury item. It's purely a luxury item as far as I know. Silk is extremely strong. Like if you put silk underneath a chain mail, I, my understanding is, is that arrows have a nearly impossible time of penetrating it. I know that some of the early forms of armor that was used over in either Japan or China actually had layers of silk with gravel stitched into it, forming a very effective form of armor, even superior to chain link. I actually saw a demonstration of a Japanese device. It's a big, poofy cloak they would wear on their back. It would be attached to their belt and just puff up. But it was made out of silk. And you know what? It stopped nine, ar nine arrows out of ten. It all was a single layer of silk. That's how good it worked. <laughs> so it's, it's basically silk is a superior material is, is what, what we're getting padding, People weren't buying it for its armor value because they can do the same thing with, with good old cotton and lots of padding. 
It's right. probably being bought to wear. Silk jammies and everything at that point, you know. And I'm, well, I'm thinking about longevity. Like, how long does silk last? How long, how durable is a material is it as opposed to, say, linen? I would say it'd be quite a bit more because silk, it's a protein. It's like a skin, in, in essence. It's not going to be as easily attacked by bacteria and things like that that are naturally being attacked, you know, as, as something made out of flax and linen would be. Yeah, it's not, it's not a plant fiber. Exactly. Yeah. And, Mm-hmm. So, right. So it has probably longevity, durability. Right. Um, it probably dissipates heat pretty well. It doesn't hold water very well, so you know it, it'll dry quickly, and that also keeps it from rotting. Because it is made from the the cocoons of silkworms, it means it's hideously expensive. You have to be able to grow the silkworms. The silk, a couple steps down from say spider silk, which is even better, but you can't get a whole lot of that. Okay, so in the 11th century, this is the tipping point in Europe into what would be considered to be the real Middle Ages. We're starting to go toward what we really start calling the Renaissance. A lot of important things happened in this century. The Normans conquer England in 1066. The commercial culture arises in northern England. The Crusades begin. The very first crusade is ordered by the Pope in 1095. The Knights Templar form in 1096, right afterwards, to protect pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. The University of Oxford holds its first lectures. And, of course, in 1099, the siege of Jerusalem (laughs) begins, and the kingdom of Jerusalem is established. If you haven't seen it, The Kingdom of Heaven, which is all about the siege of Jerusalem, is an excellent movie about what's going on. Oh, yes, I saw that, yes. Tons of buildings are built during this century. Science and technology really blooms. The Silk Road is open, so trade, gunpowder, all these things are coming in from the Chinese. They've normalized trade with the Arabs. All the sciences and the mathematics and all the things that were talked about when we talked about the whole Islam culture, that's all now coming into Northern Europe and Southern Europe, basically all of Europe. The Muslim occupation of the uh, Iberian Peninsula, which is Spain, is still going strong. So they're a really good uh, place to get information into some of the northern and western areas of Europe. They're a good culture. Ships are everywhere at this period of time. They're going to England. They're going over to the Danes and and Scandinavia. They're going south and around Africa. They're exploring Africa. This is the beginning of a huge thing. In uh, 950, is the start of the medieval warm period. We get so warm in Europe, they can grow grapes in England. But that also means they have longer growing seasons, they have more crops, there's more food, uh, there's going to be a huge population increase, which is a good thing because the plague is coming again in only a few centuries. Scandinavians <laughs> actually do make it to Greenland and eventually to North America. And one of the things that I find really interesting, just on a personal level, is the troubadour tradition begins. Uh, this is the very beginning of it. This is a good opportunity for women because they were known as troubadours. Barritz. They weren't wanderers, however. They stayed in a single location for long periods under the support of a patron. And originally all were noblemen, though they were both high and low. Some were knights. But this is an opportunity for you to have people who are carriers of trade, carriers of culture, and coming into an area and forming a center of that kind, which is almost a perfect scenario for an IDET team. You come in, you say, I'm a troubadour. Let me bring you beautiful music. You be my patron and I will create great art. You'll be known as a great house. 
And you can do that. You can draw upon 10 billion songs and manuscripts from Bach and Beethoven and all those things. Musical instruments that were made to such fine quality. You have a huge advantage here. A lot of the troubadours, a lot of them were traveling minstrels. What they really were bringing along with a lot of the old tales. I mean, we're talking songs that would take a couple hours to sing. Not epic ballads, yeah. Epic ballads. But John, that happened after this century. The beginning of it was a, a local artisan with a patron and formed a center of culture. The, the Northern England was ready for this. This is something they wanted. Then, in what were called the High Middle Ages, that's the time you got your wandering troubadours. And if that's what you want to do, you should set your adventures a little bit later. If you want to stay true to the tradition. Now, of course, there's nothing to say that you can't do that. I mean, you could easily change it up. Say, okay, well, I've been here and you're my patron, but let me take my songs of your glory somewhere else. And you start traveling, unlike the what was happening in other troubadours. But the concept of the troubadour came into being in this century, in the 11th century, and grew to become something that would codify the idea of the wandering bearer of culture, which, of course, is almost exactly what an IDET team thinks of itself as. When you're on those long trips between portals, either you're going to sleep or you're going to sing or you're play musical instruments or do something to knock back the boredom of, of driving to the next platform. You have certain skills that don't come into play during a game. Your, your mm-hmm. players may have that perform skill or that craft skill. Mm-hmm. These type of troubadour-based adventures, you get to bring those skills to the fore. You get to say, okay, I have so many ranks in perform singing or perform dance or oratory or even stand-up. You could sit there and tell jokes to entertain these these people. You can bring these skills up and use them, dust them off every so often because of this this troubadour tradition. Yeah, yeah. And where, where that would come in most handy is, is that you know, you get to a town and you don't have any money. Okay, so you speak the language. You know, the portal gave you that, but you don't. You don't have any of the coin of the realm. But if your characters can play music or are good speakers, you know, it's good storytellers. They would have some knowledge of this time. Then you could earn enough coin to to pay for your room and your board and your food and maybe even um, get you some clothes from for the for the area or um, just give you some traveling money. You can see it now, telling a story. Okay, in a, in a land far, far away, there was this race of knights called the Jedi. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the old saying, everything old is new again, you know. <laughs> but if you come into a town and you start singing your good, there's going to be a coin in their pocket for running over and telling the, the most important houses in that town that there's somebody like that who's, who's able to perform like that. Because one of the things you could say about the Middle Ages, unless you were in these really high-level cultural places, it was boring. All you had to do was say your prayers and <laughs> read your Bible and, and maybe sing some of these songs and tell some stories. You didn't have entertaining troops coming through every day. So it was almost a shoe-in to get into the house of the rich and, and influential in the area who might very be happy to provide you with that clothing that you're looking for and that food and whatever. Not only that, it goes even further than that because if you think about it, during that time you weren't selling records. You know, you didn't have – artists didn't have income in the way we think of it. They had patrons. Exactly. There was a system in place for people of wealth 
to provide artists with money to perform their art. So apparently it, it was observed, it was enjoyed. They couldn't just turn on a radio or the TV or go out to the movies or something like that. If they wanted entertainment, they had to go find someone who had ability and pay them. So you show up with some ability, and they're definitely going to seek you out. Right. It's always <laughs> fresh. No matter where you go, you can tell the same joke every time. Right. Right. If you're able to pull it off correctly, you have this box, and it's your musical instrument. But it's actually an electronic music synthesizer. So you can put trumpets, and you can play drums, and you can play all these musical instruments. You're a one-man walking manic. While you're playing the melody, you are also got the bass section going. It's witchcraft. But again, this was a time when it was illegal to believe in witches. No, <laughs> no, no, no. What you do is you have your group come in as a, as a traveling band. You set up your boombox to play music, and everyone pretends like they're playing it. They, they wouldn't even have to have any talent. Yeah, everybody could be playing an instrument when they're, in fact, not actually playing them. Oh, great. Right. Lip-syncing the early years. Yeah, yeah right. Right, right. It, it, it's Millie Vanilli, no, 600s. <laughs> 11th century Millie Vanilli, yeah. Right. And they wouldn't know the difference because they'd never seen anything like that. They wouldn't even know to look for it. Absolutely. And with the technology, even early campaign, MP3 player and speakers are something you can hide behind a box or something. And it would be maybe hand-sized at the most, and these, you know, 10th, 11th century people wouldn't know. So you can yeah. pull that off. But you'd have to be careful because here's here's the thing. In all reality, you would have to play something from that period because they just wouldn't get anything from a, from a more futuristic time period. Because up until recently, being nonconformist was not cool. Like when you're performing music back during, you know, Mozart's time, what is actually known as the classical period of classical music, they were very stringent on, on how you had to play music and how you had to compose music. And if you stepped outside of those bounds, it really wasn't observed. You know, you, you were thought of as, as a weirdo. Um, it, it wasn't really until the, what they call the romantic period where people started stepping outside of the box and creating new and, and, and like interesting things that people were like, wow, that, that's neat. That's different. That, that mindset didn't really start happening in people until then. Now, we're talking about you know the sixth century, seventh century, and you got people traveling all over the place. So that may not really be as much a factor as as a well organized society, you know, such as Europe in the in the fourteen hundreds. It depends upon the communication. You're in in some little small kingdom in the middle of France somewhere that doesn't have a whole lot of communication back, you know, with these these cultural centers we talked about. You could play whatever music you want to and say this is the big thing over in Constantinople. They're not going to tell you no. There were many people who never even left their villages their entire lives. You could pull that off, that lie off, and they'd believe it. Right. They wouldn't know any better. Well, what I'm picturing is you, you you could do that, but you couldn't go crazy with it. Like I'm picturing, you know, Back to the Future, where you know Michael J. Fox is on stage and he's just jamming out his guitar, and everybody's looking at him like, "What is that?" And he says, "Oh, your kids will love it." An acid rocker in, in King Arthur's court. <laughs> Right. You're trying to entertain this Duke and his court, and you're playing Nirvana. I, I don't think it's going to fly. They're looking more for music that's more about the story than it is about the music. See, uh, these days, we're all about the music versus right. the lyrics sometimes. 
You're right, John. During this time period, it's more about poetry set to music than music with poetry in it. Yeah. That does mean you can do a whole lot of country western songs, though. (laughs) (laughs) No offense to those who listen to country and western. Hey, I grew up on country western songs. I'm a Johnny Cash fan. That's fine. (laughs) You say my horse, my horse left me, and my, uh, you know, I fell upon my sword. If your entire repertoire is Boxcar Willie, you might have some problems. You're talking about modern-day people influencing medieval cultures. The movie Black Knight comes to mind with Martin Lawrence. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. I didn't say it was a good good movie. I just said a movie came to mind. Let's get that straight. What's that one with Heath Heath Ledger? A Knight's Tale? Oh. Oh, it's awful. (laughs) You're right. Ballads are always going to be good. Telling a story, lullabies, of course, anything religious. Any of the hymns from church, this isn't played up a lot because this is a science fiction game and gamers as a majority are not highly religious people. But all those stories, all those songs you sang when you were growing up, if you were in church, those are all good. You can play them. And then if if you are in a really enlightened place, you can whip out the DVD player and show them the greatest story ever ever told. (laughs) Maybe maybe a little Ben-Hur in there. That would be fun. Because in the 5th century, that's when Constantinople declares Christianity as the religion of Rome just before Rome starts to tank. And at that time, Rome is controlling the majority of Europe. So Christianity instantly spreads throughout Europe. The so-called Holy Roman Empire was established in the 10th century by Otto I and with Germany, Austria, Czech, Eastern France, the Netherlands, Northern Italy, and Western Poland. So... Switzerland, you got that whole area in there that is going to be looking for religious music. You can provide it. I mean, it's easy enough to do. And modern instruments, can you can program literally millions of songs. Just Milli Vanilli it, because they'll be written in Latin, <laughs> Some, most of them. So you can just whip, whip them out. You can make yourself a star wherever you go. You don't even have to have talent. And we're playing a role-playing game here, so everybody can be a good singer. Go to Victorian Earth. And see about picking up one of those mechanical bands are all the all the fashion rage. Have a paper tape that's playing them, or you have a big metal disc that does all the work. So you take care of the problem of having the MP3 player. I didn't see it as a problem, John. Actually, I do. But it doesn't sound like unless you have the perfect Bose speaker systems, it's going to sound different. It's not going to sound like real music. It'll sound like something different, and they won't know why it sounds different. Because it doesn't sound like you're actually playing the instrument. It sounds like it's coming from something else and you don't know what it sounds like. You put it inside your instruments, John, it, it, it'll be fine. Right, but but no, I see where John's coming from. That's actually pretty bright. That's, that's pretty brilliant. Thank you. Go, John. I'm serious because the, the gear works are around. You know, the, there's big clocks are being built in the later part of this period, as I, understand, as I, as I remember reading. You know, gears are getting popular and it wouldn't startle any of them. They would just... They would look at you as like, wow, you, you have a magnificent invention there. They wouldn't see it as witchcraft. They they would probably actually see that as something that you probably just, you know, you guys, you built. Yeah, but they would probably also take it away from you. Yeah, th- there's that chance. And, and there's also the, yeah. well, we want you to, to build some stuff for us. And then you start saying, well, you know, I really I can't really know do, how that. To do that. Yeah, right. And well, we want to know where you got this. And because they're thinking about turning it into a war machine or something. Here in Europe, you tell them, well, I've got an Alexandria. 
is a device based on something that Hero made of yeah. Alexandria. And they'll go, oh, wow, he's an ancient dead guy. Because for them, right. he is an ancient dead guy. <laughs> well, I was thinking primarily along the lines of here are instruments that you can play that doesn't require you actually knowing how to play. Right. So you can pose in these roles effectively. Mm-hmm. And I was really saying is that you know each instrument would only play the music that that instrument would play. You wouldn't be having a full orchestra coming out of the mouth of a lute. You know, and then you could have them all linked together through a Wi-Fi so all the instruments could stay in sync with each other. And as a group, you could pose like this. You have all this millions and millions of songs that you could choose from if you want to. You can remember, though, back then, you didn't have trombones. If you had a horn, it was, entirely, it was just a straight tube, and you blew through it. And all the sound was coming from you. Well, you had a variety of things. Flutes. Yeah, we're talking, you know, six, seven hundred years here, John. Yeah. So, yeah, they did have a variety of things. But the mechanical, the brass, the the brass horn, you know, the brass trumpet, that really is a later development. Maybe so. The whole point of this was, John, so you could bring something that would be acceptable. Yeah. That they wouldn't take from you. That would make you valuable as a group. As players and explorers, they want to be valued by the people. And there's nothing to keep someone from playing a character who actually has real skill. Yeah. Most of these people, if they actually had skill in an instrument, it was a result of long, long practice, trial and error. No formal education, no formal knowledge of music or the theory of music. While you, as a character, could come in as somebody who really did know about that and could perform a virtuoso performance on you know, whatever instruments you decide to bring. And really act as, as a light in the darkness. But officially, according to most uh, historians, at the end of the 11th century, the uh, Dark Ages ended. Besides a troubadour or a minstrel, you also had that other position that you see in a lot of movies, the court jester. I wouldn't want that job. I wouldn't want it either. <laughs> no, I'm serious. <laughs> Humor is hard, John. Oh, yeah. I mean, seriously. I mean, you have to understand the nuances of the culture you're in in order to be an effective jester. Yeah, just because you speak the language fluently due to the portal does not mean that idioms will cross over. Let's say you try to tell a a modern-day joke in classical Latin. Certain words wouldn't translate. You'd have to use loan words, and you would just— another one of those instances where you'd be getting run out you know, with sword points behind you, you know. Exactly. (laughs) Well, I think that's all I've got. There's lots of wars going on, a lot of people fighting each other. The area is very highly destabilized until practically the ninth century. So you have lots of, of, of stuff you guys can do anywhere in Europe. From my background, I'd love to spend a lot of time in Britain and having fun with the Vikings and and King Arthur. Or you could go on a lion hunt in the middle of Europe. You could try your sleuthing and spying along the Silk Road as people keep trying to bring over new and exciting discoveries from China and and India and keep the Europeans from figuring out how to make silk. You could uh, stop the passage of food from Egypt to uh, Constantinople, causing a huge change in the balance of power up there. You could even go and uh, throw your hand in with the Muslims, go on a jihad against Northern Europe, all of Europe. It's uh, up to you what you want to do. There's lots of stuff to do, and uh, it's a great place to adventure. And there's plenty of books out there, Le Mort d'Arthur, but you know, there's actually several books that, that cover a lot of the 
early Arthurian legends to give you a lot of background to how people thought back then. Connecticut and King Arthur's Court is one example. Um, Lest Darkness Falls takes place in the same time in this time period, and the guy introduces printing presses, movable type printing presses, and tries to do basically tries to jumpstart things, and turns out it's a lot harder than you think it does, as you said, until it's railroading time. Doesn't matter how 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 many printing presses you make, the powers that be don't want it. You ain't going to get it. Yeah, actually, it's written by L. L. Sprigley Camp, and it takes place at the beginning of this time period, during the fall of Rome. So he's actually trying to stop Rome from falling, and doesn't quite right. succeed. <laughs> well, he's not going to succeed unless he's got a big whole big pile yeah. of money, <laughs> because they pulled back because of a lot of reasons. One was they didn't have enough money, and secondly, there's a really good indication that they were dropping in population rapidly. There's no official record of it, but maybe there was a plague mm-hmm. that could have knocked them way back. S.M. Sterling writes a lot of stuff like this, a lot of alternate histories and stuff that you could uh, check true. into. Harry Turtledove? Yep. Yes. His Byzantium series takes place on an alternate Byzantium where uh, Muhammad is a Christian. Huh. <laughs> yes. That's, oh. That's yes. interesting. That's that's the point of divergence. Mohammed becomes a Christian, not and, and and doesn't found his own religion. The Persian Empire doesn't get conquered. Yep. And they they don't take over northern Europe. They don't they don't conquer the Iberian Peninsula. Yep. I mean, t- talk about everything changing. That would definitely do it. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million million worlds out there. So go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Blix. Remember, bullets speak louder than words. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. License 3.0. No commercial distribution or derivatives are allowed. The TriTech Podcast is wholly owned by TriTech Games. Visit us at www.tritechgamers.com or on Facebook. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.